we absolutely support the goal of eliminating the ability of Hamas to either govern in Gaza or to pose a security threat again to Israelis and to the state of Israel. No question about that at all. But in order to see those goals achieved, there must be a strong humanitarian component that purchases and secures time and space for this very, very difficult military campaign. Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. Over the last four months, we've heard from voices in the region and outside about the events of October 7th and the resultant Israel-Hamas war. We've talked about strategic goals, regional tensions, and the human toll of the war. Today, most Gazans have been displaced, and about half have been displaced multiple times. With inadequate water, food, and shelter, the humanitarian picture remains dire. This week on Babel, I'm joined by the U.S. Special Envoy for Middle East Humanitarian Issues, Ambassador David Satterfield. We talk about the needs in Gaza, the challenges of getting aid into Gaza and distributing it to Gazans, and the role of humanitarian aid in ending the conflict. Then I continued the conversation with Will Todman and Leah Hickert to discuss Gaza's ongoing humanitarian crisis and the U.S. government's competing interests. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Ambassador David Satterfield is the U.S. Special Envoy for Middle East Humanitarian Issues. He comes to that role after nearly 40 years of experience in Middle East diplomacy on behalf of the United States. Ambassador Satterfield, thanks very much for joining us on Babel. Delighted to be here. Give me a sense both of what conditions are on the ground in Gaza now and how should people think about getting authoritative information because it seems like there are a lot of different accounts going on of, of exactly what's happening and, and how bad things are. John, from the standpoint of the humanitarian situation for Gaza's 2.2, 2.3 million population, they are exceedingly difficult. By dint of U.S. leadership, strong support from the international humanitarian community, and decisions taken over the course of the last three months by the government of Israel, there's enough feeding assistance coming in to meet a minimal, minimal goal of preventing famine and actual starvation. But I don't say that as if this was a mission accomplished. It's not. The president has made very clear, Secretary Blinken, Jake Sullivan, we don't regard this. Avoidance of famine as a satisfactory outcome. Much more needs to be done. And the more that needs to be done has to address the other humanitarian factors beyond just feeding. The health situation is extraordinarily precarious. The concentration of population, particularly in Rafah, a place that had a pre-October 7th population of maybe 280, 300,000, now has a population of at least 1.4, 1.5 million. The shelter situation is wholly inadequate to need. It's winter with torrential storms, wind and rain. And the product of a compression of population into a single small space without adequate shelter with marginal availability of potable drinking water is the beginnings 
of clinical outbreak of disease. Now, right now, the situation is short of epidemic proportion, but one could predict if there is not some relief from this concentration of population, the better ability to access healthcare, potable water, a fully nutritious diet, not just a diet that prevents starvation, and they're two different things, then you will see disease spreading. So we have not been wholly unsuccessful, we and our partners, since the events of October 7th, but we are not successful enough from a humanitarian standpoint. How do you get accurate information? It's difficult. Much of the information that comes into the international press comes from Palestinian Hamas sources. Hamas controls the Ministry of Health as the de facto authority in Gaza. Some of what they report is accurate. Some of it is not. One of the stories that I had seen widely reported is that Gazans had access to three liters of water a day below the minimal requirements for survival. What I've heard from Israelis is there are 28 million liters of water a day flowing in from Israeli pipelines. On issues like that, is it the international community is slow to revise? The Israelis are painting too rosy a picture. If you have conflicting views like that, what should ordinary people do to, to try to figure out where the truth is? Well, John, this is very hard. I can tell you in this case, a quantity of water does indeed flow in the two pipelines from Israel, similar to that. Does that get distributed to the population? No, it does not. Because of damage to the distribution networks, a far lower quantity of potable water coming from those two operative pipelines, center and south, are inaccessible to the population. So that's a fact that is both true but also not relevant to the ability of 2 million people to actually get the water that they need. And I cannot give you a solution to the how to find the accurate information. We find it by consulting throughout the international humanitarian community with UN, with ICRC, with the other entities who are active in Gaza to formulate a picture. But I have to tell you, at times, we spend hours or days trying to discern the truth in a, a flat statement, which we can't verify immediately, but can only do over time. And it's my understanding we don't have Americans in Gaza assessing this. You're trying to be the humanitarian coordinator from outside the situation where you're trying to affect the humanitarian environment. Is that correct? The answer is yes, we are outside, but we have very close continuous throughout the day, every day contact with professional staff, humanitarian staff inside Gaza. And collectively, the picture that we draw from them is, I think, a pretty good one, but it can take time. Much of the aid getting into Gaza is coming not through a water pipeline, but through crossings. And goods going through the crossings have to be inspected before they're allowed in. Are these sites operating at their limits, or do we need to revise the procedures to get more throughput? The two inspection sites maintained by Israel, the Nitsana crossing between Egypt and Israel, and the Kerem Shalom crossing between Israel 
and Gaza together have a capacity, a demonstrated capacity of between 300, 320 inspected trucks a day. That capacity could be increased if the hours of the crossings were expanded. They're open, each of them, about eight, eight and a half hours a day. If trucks arrived promptly from Egypt, which is where the deliveries come in from, except for a, a small proportion from Jordan, you could get more done through the day. But even if those two crossings operated as perfectly as they could, more needs to be done. Now, the more that needs to be done is not necessarily moving more trucks of humanitarian assistance. It's moving commercial goods from Egypt that supplement what we would call the ready-to-eat, fully prepared meals that go in right now as humanitarian assistance, the high-energy biscuits, that sort of material, to supplement a true normal diet, which Gazans haven't had since shortly after October 7th. Additional crossings need to be open to make this possible. The Secretary of State has called both privately and publicly uh, last week for the opening of Erez Crossing in northern Gaza for the movement of humanitarian assistance. We are working with other partners in the region and beyond on the possibility of establishing a maritime humanitarian supply route into Gaza. All of that not to replace what is being done at Karim Shalom or Nitsana, but to supplement the movement in. But there is another problem. That is the ability to safely and efficiently distribute goods inside Gaza once they have entered. You can deposit hundreds of truckloads of goods inside Gaza. But if the environment is not secure and safe for the UN, for other humanitarian implementers to take and to move to the distribution points, to shelters that need them, then you haven't met the goals. Just counting truckloads into Gaza is a false metric of how much actually gets to Gazans in need. And I must tell you, over the course of the past 10 days, there have been very significant, very significant obstacles to getting assistance first into Gaza. Karim Shalom and Nitsana were closed for much of the last week because of demonstrations on the Israeli side. They have reopened, but now there are problems from criminal gangs inside Gaza, looting commercial goods, looting the humanitarian shipments coming in, not just via the UN, but from Jordan, from the UAE, and goods directed to the Palestinian Red Crescent Society. This is a big problem. It is one we are trying to address literally today to see what can be done to resolve it. And what's the solution set? When I was talking to some folks at the Israeli embassy a few weeks ago, they talked about Hamas providing security for food shipments and the Israelis being okay with that to prevent rioting as people were seeking food. Is the answer working with Hamas? Is the answer working with former security officials of Fatah? Is there some other solution set that we need to be looking at? Those moving goods for distribution in Gaza have indeed relied, certainly over the last month, month and a half, on what we would call the de facto security forces there. Is that Hamas? Yes, it's a practical matter. It is. Are there concerns about Hamas? You bet there are. But the overarching concern, as we would see it, is the ability to meet the minimal survival needs of two million Gazans in the center and in the south. 
And if actions are taken which render convoys, whether by the UN or anyone else, incapable of moving securely without assaults on drivers, attacks on the trucks, looting, and not looting by desperate civilians, but criminal gangs for resale for profit in the black market. If that can't be addressed, or if addressal requires those de facto elements to do it, there's got to be a triaging here of where the strategic priorities lie. For us, the strategic priority in the immediate sense is the ability to meet the basic survival needs of the population of Gaza. We absolutely support the goal of eliminating the ability of Hamas to either govern in Gaza or to pose a security threat again to Israelis and to the state of Israel. No question about that at all. But in order to see those goals achieved, there must be a strong humanitarian component that purchases and secures time and space for this very, very difficult military campaign. And is there any sign that Hamas is interested in either deepening or worsening the humanitarian crisis because it helps them in terms of reaching out to the rest of the world and building support for the Palestinian cause overseas? John, I have seen little indication that Hamas cares one way or the other regarding the suffering of the civilians of Gaza. It is Hamas which over the years since 2006, 2007, has built an embedded terrorist network, infrastructure under, within, beside humanitarian infrastructure in Gaza, which has in a calculated fashion over those many years relied upon the presence of population of civilians, of human shields, if you want to use that term, to offer some imagined protection to itself. No, I don't think they give a damn one way or the other what happens to the civilian population. It's not a pressure on them, and it is not something they hope can yield perhaps less in pressure upon them. Is it your sense that the Israelis want to ensure that Gaza is miserable to try to push either Gazans to turn away from Hamas or to turn Hamas toward negotiations? Is there a sense that the humanitarian situation is being used as a lever by the Israelis? John, I have never seen that demonstrated. What Israel does believe is that sustained kinetic pressure on Hamas is necessary to secure the goal of release of all of the Israeli hostages, living and those dead. That without that kinetic pressure, Hamas would have little incentive to move. And frankly, that's a point I can't take issue with. I have not seen any theory of the case in which depriving the civilian population of food and water somehow is a pressure point on Hamas. As I said, Hamas doesn't care. And the Israelis would acknowledge that same argument. Doesn't mean anything to Hamas. What happens to the civilian population? So no, I don't see that. What I do believe needs to continue to be reinforced, and we do, is the concept that without a strong humanitarian component, the ability to sustain that kinetic campaign over time becomes challenged. I've been struck when I look at the Israeli press 
in Hebrew using the translation function on a browser, that the humanitarian issues are simply not present in the Israeli press. They talk about Israeli heroes, they talk about Israeli martyrs, they talk about the kinetic operations, but the humanitarian issue seems consistently absent at a time when the international press is quite focused on the humanitarian issue. As you spend time talking to Israelis, do you sense that the attitude toward the humanitarian component is moving in the direction that you've described? Or does it remain something that Israelis say, I'm sorry, that's just not our problem? I'm going to give you two responses to that, John. The first is that Israeli journalists, particularly those posting on Israeli and international social media, very actively cover the humanitarian situation and the positions or responses of Israeli officials in the government to that humanitarian challenge. That reporting is very much out there. If you're speaking about the mainstream print media in Israel, yes, your comments are not off the mark. Social media does a far better job of this than those print media do. But you ask me, what do Israelis think about this? Not what the media reflects. Israel is traumatized. And Secretary Blinken has spoken to this publicly on many occasions. Without coming and being there, it's very difficult in a cold analytical sense to comprehend. The events of October 7th were shattered in a way that October 73 was not. They challenged, if not overturned, the basic premise, the basic social contract of Israel, that their sons and daughters would serve in Israel's security forces and perhaps have to sacrifice in that process. But in return, Israeli citizens would have the ability to lead what Bill Clinton once said, referring to the Israel-Palestinian peace process, as the quiet miracle of a normal life. That assumption, that contract was broken on October 7th. And the trauma that it invoked reinforced every day by the continued presence of the hostages in Gaza, by the fact that 200,000 Israeli civilians are displaced from their homes in Gaza corridor, the perimeter around Gaza in Israel, but also from northern Israel. That is profoundly compressing in a social, in a political, in a psychological sense to the government, to the choices the government makes. If you asked what is the view of most Israelis on the street to humanitarian assistance, they would put humanitarian assistance well below the return of their hostages and to the ending of the threat posed by Hamas to Israel, not now, but in the future. I don't want to create a false equivalence, but you've worked on Arab-Israeli issues for a very long time. When you first met me, you were a veteran on Arab-Israeli issues already, and that was 25 years ago. It seems to me that the trauma you've described is a trauma that many Palestinians have felt they have been experiencing for decades. Is it different in some way? And is there a way we should think about the trauma that's a key to unlocking what has been a very difficult problem for many, many years? John, I'll echo Secretary Blinken again when he said every death, every Palestinian child killed in this conflict 
is, he used the phrase, a kick in the gut, something he thinks about constantly. The equivalency here, which is not a false one, is every human life is precious. And there must be no dehumanization in or as a consequence of the horrible events of October 7th. Hamas dehumanized Israelis that day. Hamas dehumanizes in an active sense the hostages still being held in those tunnels underneath Gaza. But Israel must not dehumanize Palestinians or Gazans in specific. That would be a horrific legacy, however this conflict resolves itself, because that legacy will poison the ability to move in the future to what we profoundly believe is the only lasting means of assuring security, peace for both Palestinians and Israel. And that is a pathway to a two-state resolution. As you engage with the Israeli government, the Egyptian government, the Jordanian government, all sorts of governments through the region, what are the most important tools that you have to ensure humanitarian assistance? And what are the tools you wish you had? The most important tool that I have is that all the governments you have just referenced, and I was just in the UAE yesterday morning, all those governments understand fully in a very immediate sense that without humanitarian assistance, it will be impossible for Israel to achieve the goals, which they do not disagree with, of making sure Hamas, that terrorist group, cannot dictate life and governance to the two million people of Gaza and cannot threaten not just Israel, but to threaten them as well with their political ambitions and their ideology. In other words, I'm not pushing on a closed door. The door is already open. They want to do what can be done that makes sense, is practical to improve the humanitarian situation. That's certainly true for Egypt from the very beginning of this process, but it's true for the other critical states in the Middle East who are providing either material support or financial support for humanitarian aid. The greatest tool that I wish I had in greater abundance was a ceasefire, which is the product of releases of hostages, because a ceasefire that stands on its own and not as part of a hostage release only benefits Hamas and is not something that we find acceptable or advisable. A ceasefire would allow, particularly if it was of an enduring character, the ability to move more humanitarian assistance, not just into Gaza, but more freely throughout Gaza, including to the north, which has been a very difficult challenge for us and for the humanitarian implementers during these months. The last thing I want to get your judgment on is whether we are at a humanitarian inflection point. And if we do hit an inflection point, what do you think the first signs are that things are either decisively shifting in a better way or in a much worse way? Well, John, there's a potential inflection point out there, which could be quite negative. And that is an Israeli kinetic campaign, ground campaign in Rafa. In Rafa, you have 1.4, 1.5 million persons, all but a handful, are already displaced to Rafa under IDF instructions from either North Gaza or progressively 
from the center of Gaza into this small area right up against the Egyptian border in the south. We've been very clear at the highest levels of government, the president, secretary, National Security Council, with the highest levels of the government of Israel, the prime minister on down, that any kinetic campaign in Rafah must be preceded by a planned, coherent, and adequate movement of civilian population out of Rafah to appropriate shelter with full humanitarian support. That takes time, it takes preparation, it takes the engagement of the international community, it takes Israel being willing to provide the permissions necessary, we call that deconfliction and coordination, for humanitarian assistance to work that may. And John, this is a heck of a challenge. A million people plus being moved under the conditions which now obtain in southern Gaza, as well as in the north, were any of them to be allowed to go to the north? Very hard to do. But we've been clear, however hard, this needs to be the condition precedent or antecedent to any Israeli kinetic campaign in Rafah. So there you have perhaps the biggest single inflection point out there right now. The next inflection point is, of course, what I referenced a few minutes ago. If there is a hostage release deal, and I cannot and won't speculate on odds or chances, but if the deal comes and with it comes a prolonged ceasefire, more than the week we saw in November, that also should be a positive inflection point for that ability to get greater aid in both humanitarian and commercial and to see it distributed efficiently to all of Gaza, including the North. David Satterfield, the U.S. Special Envoy for Middle East Humanitarian Issues, thank you very much for joining us on Babel. Thank you, John. According to Ambassador Satterfield, Hamas is not intentionally worsening the humanitarian crisis in Gaza to win support for the Palestinian cause. Where else in the region have we seen groups or actors intentionally exacerbate crises for their own political gain. To me, it's more obvious to think of actors worsening humanitarian crises for military gains than political. And Syria is certainly the place that would come to mind for me. The most obvious example is the siege warfare that Bashar al-Assad conducted in the during the conflict. He deliberately cut large populations uh, where opposition groups were active from the necessary food, goods, basic services that they need for their survival. And then I think we think of other, you know, actors that have used humanitarian crises or exacerbated humanitarian crises for political aims as well in Syria when it comes to Russia and China vetoing the UN's ability to deliver aid across the border. I think that weakens those areas and therefore that serves sort of military purposes. When it comes to political, there is something interesting, I think, when it comes to what Bashar al-Assad has done in Syria, because there was a speech he gave sometime around 2017 or 2018, where he said, Syria has lost a lot of its most talented young people, but in doing so, we have become a healthier and more homogenous society. 
So there is a degree to which by displacing, deliberately displacing Syrians from the country, he has got rid of those who he viewed as, as disloyal and then has re retained those who will presumably be more loyal to him. And I think that certainly served political gains. There certainly have been times not only when countries have tried to push people out for being in the wrong group, for having the wrong views. But it also seems to me that, that we've seen a number of instances where groups have used humanitarian suffering to create a basis for delivering humanitarian assistance and then use that for their own political gain. So it's the flip side. But we've certainly seen Hezbollah in Lebanon, for example, taking advantage of food shortages and other things. And that gives you an opportunity to show you can deliver. In Egypt, after an earthquake in 1992, the government barred the Muslim Brotherhood from delivering humanitarian assistance because they were afraid that the Muslim Brotherhood could show it was better at providing than the government was. And so th there's a way in which populations are thought to be very attentive to how aid is delivered and governments see that as both an opportunity but also as a threat. Let's talk a little bit more about that humanitarian aid. Right now, the United States is relying on international actors like the UN or the ICRC to distribute humanitarian aid in Gaza. What is the role of more local actors like civil society groups in distributing aid in conflict zones? And are civil society groups playing any role in the Israel-Hamas war right now? Well, even when it is the UN providing aid, it is very often delivered through local NGOs. In a lot of conflict-affected areas, it's the local groups who are actually, you know, providing those services, conducting needs assessments, and whatnot. And there are a lot of benefits of this. Local groups often have a better understanding of the actual needs of the community and the types of aid that they will want and that they require. They often have better connections, which helps with access, particularly when we're talking about environments in which armed actors restrict access to certain areas, they can use those connections then to, to reach those who are in need. And they also then take risks that I think international aid actors are less willing to take. We're seeing that right now in, in Gaza, where a lot of the humanitarian workers are really facing very real risks to their life. Some have been killed. Many have relatives, friends, certainly, who have been caught up in this. So not only are they providing aid for those in need, but they themselves are potentially in, in, in need of support as well. But because of that role that they take on, they often have a lot of legitimacy from local communities. The unfortunate piece of the big role that they play is that they don't receive a big part of the humanitarian funding in, this, in the global system. And Certainly, US aid is trying to increase the localization of aid. This is something that the humanitarian community writ large has really pushed for for a long time. But in places like Gaza, this becomes very evident where, as Ambassador Satterfield said, there aren't Americans in there helping coordinate this system. It's completely relying on locals. So they're playing a critical role. When in many cases, you have international NGOs also delivering aid doing this sort of last mile. Many of the international NGOs hire local individuals or certainly in Syria, I met a number and in Jordan, I met a number of people involved with Mercy Corps, International Rescue Committee, others who are Arabs working in an Arab environment, not necessarily Syrians, Jordanians, but many are. So what actually qualifies as local 
can change. I think from a U.S. government, a U.N. point of view, having an organization that has some sort of legal standing and international legal standing is important when you're worried about diversion, you're worried about bringing extremists in, you're worried about all sorts of other kinds of finance-related issues. Having an international cover, an international status is helpful, but you also need the local piece, as Will said, partly because they understand what's actually happening on the ground. They know who the people are. They know who the families are. And they're an effective part. You really need a partnership that goes from the international to the regional down to the local. That's very interesting. Ambassador Satterfield talked a little bit about some of the challenges the United States is facing right now. On one hand, the United States wants to alleviate the humanitarian crisis that's going on in Gaza. But on the other hand, it also wants to preserve its really longstanding relationship with Israel. How is the U.S. government balancing these ostensibly competing interests? I think the U.S. government is trying to what is often described as as walk and chew gum at the same time. It is certainly committed to a deep strategic relationship with Israel in which there are probably unprecedented tensions between the political leaderships. At the same time, the U.S. has had a global commitment to international humanitarian relief. And I think U.S. officials who I've spoken to deeply believe, as Ambassador Satterfield said, solving the humanitarian problem is an essential piece to addressing the political challenges. So I think you're seeing all of those things happening. There's certainly close partnership with the government of Israel, close partnership with international humanitarian agencies, close partnership with neighboring governments to provide support, close partnership with international organizations. The U.S. is doing all of them simultaneously with an eye toward how do we array things in such a way that we can get to a better place politically when the conflict ends. The political and the humanitarian definitely do seem inextricably linked in this conflict. Thank you for joining me, John. Thanks, Will. Thank you, Leah. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast. Thank you.